millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. Keir Starmer has you turned over student fees and finance. We'll work out why. Plus, support for PGRs is in the news. Universities are fundraising pretty frantically. And disadvantaged students go on to be lower-earning graduates. But why? It's all coming up. You, you know, broadly speaking, it's it, it, it's uh, uh, about where it is now, but just a bit, just a bit more, just a bit more to make it easy. And I and I still think, you know, uh, we are not talking enough around the derisory increase for the maintenance loans next year. And I haven't heard any party take this on at all. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and I'm here to chew the H-E meat in this bank holiday sandwich that we're in. As usual, three fabulous guests. Uh, in Gravesend, Selena Bolingbrook is an education consultant. Selena, your highlight of the week, please. Um, traditional bank holiday for me, Jim. Uh, sofa, snooker, family-sized bag of crisps. Snooker, the snooker. Wow, that was fantastic. So exciting. Fantastic. Uh, in Manchester's famous Oxford Road Student Union building, Ben Ward is Chief Exec at the University of Manchester Student Union. Ben, your highlight of the week? Well, uh, actually from yesterday, so a bunch of us here spent a lot of time in Nottingham, visiting Nottingham Trends and the University of Nottingham, talking about civic engagement and working with local authorities. Really exciting pieces of work going on both in Nottingham and Manchester, and it was uh, great to compare notes. So uh, something really refreshing after the after the bank holiday weekend. It was. It was I, I was there, cracking cracking day out, and a cracking burger for lunch. So there we go. There's, uh, there's, there's my review. And in Oxford itself, Michael Salmon is news editor at Wonky. Michael, your highlight of the week, please. Yeah, nothing really. It's been very busy, um, but looking forward to the celebrations this weekend because it's my partner's birthday. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> I wondered what you were going to say then. So, yes, very good. Uh, so, yes, we start this week with student finance. On Tuesday, the Times ran a front page on some happy polling, and then the next thing we knew, Keir Starmer was in the TV studios. Selena, what happened next? Well, uh, there was uh, Keir on the airwaves admitting that a it was likely that the, the next Labour government would move away from uh, the pledge to scrap tuition fees. Uh, he was looking for a fairer solution, but he didn't say a lot about what fairer might look like. Um, and the kind of rationale being that we just couldn't afford it now, uh, whereas he felt that we could have afforded it a couple of years ago when he was um, pitching for uh, Labour and possibly Labour student votes. Um, so that was the uh, big headlines on the Labour front, but also... Uh, a couple of announcements, uh, one from Wales in terms of the uh, Welsh uh, government's announcement that Wales would stick with their current system of student loan repayment and not adopt the English move to the so-called Plan 5 this September, which you'll recall means a lower payment threshold, a lower interest rate and a longer repayment term. Um, so what in the past, Wales have generally followed uh, England on, on on this, but he says that they're sticking with their own plan because he felt that these reforms were actually regressive. 
and then finally, in Scotland, um, not good news for them, 20 million of funding that had been promised to universities back in December, and indeed 26 million promised to FE colleges, has now been withdrawn by the Scottish Government, as they have other priorities. They haven't said what those other priorities are, but um, I think it's suspected that it is to do with their recent uh, pay settlement for teachers. So, lots going on, but all of which speak to a, a, a system wobbling all over the place and no real big answers. Mm, yeah, so, yes, it's been yeah, yeah, quite a week. Michael, yeah, you, I mean, you, you were sort of following this on Tuesday. Lots of people were speculating about why Keir Starmer would make this announcement a couple of days before the locals, but I, I, I got the impression that he was kind of bounced into this. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it does sound like it. So so the Times went with a senior party source has said there's going to be a, a speech later in May about tuition fees. And so it felt like he was kind of being bounced into talking about it um, on the Today programme. Um, and, you know, and he sort of, as, as Selena said, sort of, you know, hesitantly confirmed that he was going to move away from it. The Guardian this morning has said, you know, again, other party sources suggest that, uh, you know, he he wasn't wanting to talk about it in the run up to the local elections, and it does look a bit odd. Um, you know, interesting to to sort of see what it does to uh, you know, to 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 the Labour vote. I think you know, there's some people see it as you know part of this you know seven dimensional chess thing of you know at least he's in the headlines. Um, you know, maybe there's certain floating voters that will be attracted by this kind of thing, but I mean, I, it doesn't sound like that on balance. I mean, I think having more headlines about flip-flops and and giving you know even the snp an attack line in in, in parliament yesterday against him um you know it doesn't it, it probably doesn't it, it, it on balance it seems like they were just sort of it was an unplanned announcement that's come to surprisingly dominate the week i mean in terms of the kind of cost of all of this ben you know obviously his his rationale here is um, you know, we're in different economic times. You know, one of the things I thought interesting that he hasn't actually mentioned that, <laughs> that you know, abolishing uh, tuition fees has become significantly more expensive than when Corbyn promised it because of the kind of changes that the the Tories have made. But, but I mean, you know, was this inevitable? And is it is it about the finances or is it about the politics or is it about both? I mean, what's, you know, what's going on? I mean, my view is it's about both. This is one of those hot potato issues that probably needed to be dealt with by him, you know, this long away from a general election. You know the the debate always needed to be happen now. It's it's one of those um, th- those issues that was I think you know put as a promise and and look how many parties have been got by that promise over the last uh, over the last twenty years. Um, that the numbers just don't stack up. And what remains interesting about this is still no one is talking about um, the actual cost of living. We're still focused on the undergraduate fee, how high, how not high, and on all of that. No one is talking about the wider challenges with the student funding system. And, and until we start seeing some innovative policy on that, I think all of them are missing the point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, Selena, but I mean, you know, on the day, the other day, as usual, this kind of stream of commentators, and, and I'd also got the radio on, which didn't help, and there was a phone in on it, all of which were saying, you know, the interest rate, uh, needs to come down and you know we're saying that the overall fee needs to come down despite the fact that it's not really the interest rate or the overall fee that really determines how much people pay in the end and you know how, how do we get to a point is, is is public understanding about the current system a lost cause because of the way it's been designed or, sh- or do you think there ought to be some leadership from at least one political party over how the system actually works 
I think the complexity in the, the current system is a big problem. And I think if you were going to have some kind of higher education commission to look at this again, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know whether or not it's an independent one, because I think you're right. You do need bold political leadership on this because we kind of know what the options are. We've had enough commissions from Deering onwards to really understand what the options are. But the complexity has served a purpose, a political purpose, hasn't it, over the last sort of 10 to 15 years. Um, I'm reminded, actually, of my, my Easter Bank holiday activity where I rewatched the film The Big Short, um, which, of course, is a, a, a film about the 2008 global crisis. But it's the complexity in that system that the sort of sleight of hand about what you think you are um, fueling is not actually the activity that's happening on the ground. And I think we've arrived at that point, whereas it's not just general public knowledge of the system. Um, I think it's also student and graduate knowledge of the system. So it's not a fair financial commitment to take on in that sense, because I don't think there is a really good understanding. But even when you talk to people who should be in the know, whether it be policymakers or indeed, you know, university administrators, I think there's quite a wide variety of um, understanding and knowledge about the impacts of tweaks to the current system. I think the one thing we know for sure is tweaking complex systems rarely makes them better. So, you know, I've always been in favour of we have really got to start again. Yeah, I mean, Michael, I, I, did, I, did, I did a thread on how the, how, how the system works. And, you know, it was lovely that lots and lots of people said, you know, this is really interesting, this is really great. But one of my reflections was I don't really have a kind of general audience on Twitter. I mainly have people in the sector. And if that many people are going well, thanks for explaining it. we got a problem, haven't we? Yeah, um, we do, says everybody. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, it's very hard because... So he hasn't announced anything. There's kind of at this point not really any indication of what sort of system they're they're, they're having in. They you know they're they're thinking about. We hear there may be some kind of plans, or you know the papers have said this morning they'll be beginning to commission consulting. Um, so it could still be a, quite a long way away. And um, and yeah, London Economics this week has has released some other very technical models. They've in the past done things for labour, and it is all very complicated. Reading it, it's sort of you look at these different sort of methods of stepped repayments or exploring. You know what is really going on with Plan Five now that the Office for National Statistics is is abolishing the use of RPI from 2030. It's, you know how, how do you actually clearly communicate to people these changes? And yeah, yeah as you said, the sort of the com the wider commentary, um, you know, beyond your thread, did show there's you know lots of people looking at fee levels, um, which really is just an indication of you know if you ask students, you know, do you think fees should be lower? Essentially, you're sort of, what at this point what you're saying to them is, do you think your degree should have less invested on it. You know, do you think your your sort of university with its precarious finances should be getting even less? Um, and that, so, you know, that question is 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 sort of as you say, really missing the point. Um, you know, sort of thinking about the Wales announcement. I, that I think that's very interesting. Just to sort of shift away from Starmer for a minute, you know, because it's it's just so they've they've said okay it's going to be 30 we're going to stick with 30 years repayments not 40 because it's it would be a regressive move we want to spend the money on other things we want to support different kinds of students you know that is uh, you know fair play to this move because it's not a decision that's going to massively thrill any voter in wales you know i think in 30 years time there's going to be a few people in wales well you know quite a lot of people in wales looking back and going oh look my fee repayments are finished but my cousin in england 
who is the same year as me has still got another 10 years what's that about was still, do i remember something from when but, but actually michael if you, you know one of the things i was thinking this morning right so that wales and england comparison is fascinating for all sorts of reasons so on the one hand right two people are sat round at the moment you know at a, a, a table round at a christmas one of them is um a student from wales and one's a student from england and they're getting radically different maintenance support okay so that is what it is we talked about that before you are right one of them is going to kind of finish repaying in 30 one will finish repaying in 40 if they start in september but of course in the meantime if you think about the debt level in the bottom right hand corner of the student loan statement one of them you know the student in wales is going to feel like their debt is going up and up and up and up unless jeremy miles can get the slc to rewrite the the, the kind of format of the student loan statement Whereas the student in England, for, for for all 40 years, is going to feel better off because they have less debt. And, you know, I mean, part of this just underlines how ridiculous and complicated the system is, doesn't it? But these comparisons, I suspect, are going to matter. Yeah, they are, you know, which is why I really think, you know, fair, fair play to Wales's Labour government that um, to sort of make this move when it's, it's quite a sort of principled technocratic reform that no one's going to get particularly enthusiastic about. And as you say, could even lead to, you know, students in Wales thinking... Why is my why is this horribly unfair RPI plus more inflation being levied on me? And you know we get into those conversations that hopefully in England are, are you know are, are going to disappear where with people misunderstanding how interest affects repayments. Ben, let's just do a quick pivot into into UCU actually here because we hear that at UCU's Congress later in the month there will be a debate about student number controls, and you know obviously for Labour. On the one hand, you know, they've tended to, to, you know, have this debate over the past few years about marketisation through the frame of fees or not. But if there's still a strong view that's kind of anti-marketisation, um, but, you know, kind of, you know, accepting of a kind of level of or type of tuition for your graduate contribution, that really is about number controls, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and look what's happening to the sector right now. You know, if I... If, if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years in universities like mine, massive expansion, uh, you know, hoovering up students that, that has damaged other parts of the sector. And that has huge implications on national pay bargaining, uh, on um, the unit of resource being go going into supporting students. Um, Labour's the one thing we've always known about Labour traditionally is it's been taking an expansionist attitude to higher education. And, you know, if, if they start getting sucked into student number controls, you know, we're then on to uh, restricting students' ambition and, and so on and so on. So I, I think this will be a really interesting time um, for uh, for the sector. Yeah, and, and this is it, Selena, isn't it? Because, you know, on the one hand, I suspect Labour will want to focus on, you know, uh, making sure that the economy is supported and that, you know, that, that, that um, you know, local education and skills needs are developed but on the other hand the tories will be busy going well you're an enemy of opp opportunity yeah but i think if you were thinking about the system and actually you wanted to yes contain the cost to some extent but also still have a really strong skills output rather than if you like putting constraints on the number of students in higher education i think one thing that's never really done is there's never been an attempt to really make alternatives to higher education attractive to the student learner. So we have seen no real kind of renaissance of further education. And I 
really do believe that from both a learner point of view, but also from an employer point of view, that's where the next real kind of big wave of public funding in tertiary education needs to go. And I, I just think the kind of the optics around the politics of this, rather than talking about university number controls, actually, let's make FE much, much more attractive. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the students that have ended up in higher education over certainly the last 10 years, you know, could could well be attracted into a cheaper form of living, a cheaper form of learning without feeling as if it is a cheaper and uh, inferior form of learning. I think the other thing I was just going to comment on was the, the, the HEPI poll, which I do think is really interesting in that. And it's a poll of undergraduate students. So that is obviously a small slice of the young population um but there's again there's no obvious outcome that everybody gets behind so you know less than 30 percent want to abandon tuition fees um just you know a 20 percent a fifth of them want to keep the current system so i i actually go back a long way on this issue in that the first piece of published research that i did back in the mid 1990s was on student funding and even then so this is pre-tuition fees being introduced they, we'd only had five years of maintenance of, of maintenance loans um, but even then only 70% of students wanted free tuition 30% accepted that there should be a contribution towards their tuition so this has always been a very mixed issue um, and um, in my view I think if I was sort of sitting uh, advising uh, a shadow minister, I, I would actually want to take the attention away from HE to some extent and to refocus it on FE. Yes, and I mean that that that, that polling on um, that polling on student attitudes was interesting, Michael, wasn't it? Because it kind of kicked the whole week off. But then later in the week, didn't we also get some YouGov polling on on kind of general general population attitudes on some on on, on similar questions? Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, YouGov had a sort of snap poll uh, as a sort of watching their website like a hawk because as soon as the Starmer um, news was in I thought okay YouGov will do something really quickly and they polled about uh, 2,500 people you know all adults across Great Britain and again similarly you know we got about a, it wasn't quite as sort of fine-grained as Heppies in terms of do you like 3,000 do you like 6,000 do you, you know but it was um you know it did sort of explain what was meant by the different things and we got quite a lot of people saying you know about a third of respondents saying tuition fees about a third saying graduate tax and a third saying employers should contribute ish i mean and there were some interesting breakdowns with with sort of labor voters keener that um that 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 sort of uh, i said employers but i know what i mean was general taxation and labor voters were more keen um on general taxation as were younger voters i believe um you know which which is interesting but again just like selena said shows there's not really um a clear consensus emerging if the way politicians are making decisions is based on, you know, trying to sort of feel, take the temperature of what different groups of voters would be interested in. Um, you know, that's not the right way to make these decisions. We, there, there is a bit of a need to do some sort of technocratic policy making uh, and and really deal with these sort of complex options, and then also do you know successfully get the optics right as well. It's 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 it's. It is complicated, and uh, that's I think one thing the polls make very clear. Ben, if 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 the if all the indications are right in terms of the stuff I've seen coming out from um, you know come some of the housing bodies and you know, some of the you know agents and so on, Labour Party conference this autumn, which presumably the press will be talking up as some kind of flashpoint on issues like tuition fees, will be happening at roughly the same time 
that people are struggling to find somewhere to live within a reasonable um, price frame. And, you know, that may well happen again in Manchester, may, may, maybe not. But, I mean, it certainly will be happening in lots of other cities around uh, the country. Is, 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 is this issue of kind of, you know, housing and hardship going to overtake fees at some point, do you think? We've sort of been saying that for the last 20 years, <laughs> um, that, 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 that actually... Uh, you know, where is the plan around student living costs and maintenance? We, you know, it is in sharp focus now because of the um, sudden uh, growth in universities in particular parts of the country and the cost of living crisis. Um, but it, but it's always been there. Um, and so, you know, what we've seen over the last 10 years is a, you know, huge growth in the purpose-built student accommodation market that has driven the prices up um, to unaffordable levels. Hostile councils making it more difficult for... Um, cheaper HMOs to operate, uh, and and so on and so on. So so that that's going on. Me- meanwhile, the, the the thing that really interested me about the Happy Poll is around um, how much money do you think students would be provided with maintenance each year, not including tuition fees. And you, you know, broadly speaking, it's it, it, it's a, a, about where it is now, but just a bit just a bit more, just a bit more to make it easy. And I and I still think. You know, we are not talking enough around the derisory increase for the maintenance loans next year. And I haven't heard any party take this on at all. Um, You know, housing is always, university housing is always seen as an issue for the Department of Education rather than uh, the Department for Communities and Local Government uh, and so on and so on. And so um, until we start seeing some real debate around uh, the type of higher education we have in this country, whether the moving away from home model is needs to remain the dominant feature of it and i do agree with selena around the role of further education still the poor middle child uh, 17 years after the report that named it so um so so there's 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 lots go- there's lots going on here that labor could get their teeth into uh, if they wanted to but i fear it will once again be reductive fees how high fees whether at all uh, graduate tax yes or not really uh, and so on and so on right let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hi, I'm Libby Homer, Director of Student and Library Services at Anglia Ruskin University and Co-Chair of Sconnell. This week I have written about the new deal struck with Springer Nature and whilst accepting it, the significant reservations expressed by the library sector. Read how you and your colleagues can promote open access at your institutions and more widely so that we can truly transform our next set of negotiations. There are seven simple actions that you can take to support open access, including questioning both walled gardens and the article processing charges you're being asked to pay, and also utilising your institution's rights retention statement. Help us transform before we face a similar situation with open monographs. Now, next up, UKRI has announced a stipend increase, but Michael, all was not as it initially seemed. Uh, Yeah, no, that's right. Um, Jim, I think this was a bit of the curse of wonkies watching, you know, um, for announcements like like a hawk. And uh, so w- when we looked onto the page, it, we we saw a six point three percent increase. Um, and however, that was quickly updated, and UKRI told us that it was a, it was a sort of error on their their side that um, they they put sort of outdated information there, and it was actually a five percent, a uh, five point three percent increase um, for next academic year to the postgraduate. Um, stipend for those funded by UKRI. Of course, other studentships across the sector generally follow suit. So the the full time equivalent of that is um, eighteen thousand six hundred and twenty two pounds. Um, 
yeah, it's been a sort of a bit of an ongoing saga anyway. Um, it's usually set in January, but there's been they've been sort of briefing and trailing that you know the kind of volatile climate and the, the sort of you know lack of clarity on what inflation levels are going to be like has, has meant they've been delaying it and maybe seeing how how much money and what what their their sort of institutions are telling them. Um, and there's probably an extent to which you know, so obviously 5.3 percent is is below inflation as as it stands and as it was in September. But um, you know, there's an extent to which they probably overshot last year with what ended up being a 13 percent increase to the stipend for the current year. Um, you know, it looks 5.3 percent. It looks worse than 6.3 percent as we sort of spotted originally. But um, um, it does look quite a lot better than the. 2.8 that Ben has just mentioned for undergraduates in England and you know and quite a bit worse than say undergraduates in Wales who've got their maintenance linked to the living wage so it's a kind of medium news but um you know there was a little sort of some interesting details in how it um how it came out um as you and you've written about this on the site and um you know there's there's also the question of the number of studentships obviously if if they're better funded you know and you're talking about a fixed set of money going to it that means there's going to be fewer of them um and so uh, we think there was maybe um I, you know I, I don't want to sort of speculate too much but it, it it feels from what people in the sector have told us that you know originally they were planning to reduce the number of studentships and um and and now that that sort of uh, that plan has has been has been um I don't want to say flip-flopped on, but, um, it, you know, it has been... Revised. <laughs> revised, yeah. Sorry, I've got Keir Starmer in my head. Um, I, I think, I don't want to be unfair to you, KRI, but, they, you know, they've re revised the plan uh, and, and made the stipend a little less generous in order to to avoid reducing the number of studentships. Ben, obviously, you know, all of this is, is to some extent a part of this wider programme of work for UKRI on a new deal for postgraduate researchers. But if it is a new deal, I'm not sure what the deal consists of because it isn't clear, is it, how much money PGRs need to live on and therefore no. it's really hard to judge whether or not the increase is too high or too low or what. You know? Yeah, it is. I and mean, one of the things I was reflecting on the other day, it's interesting how PGRs students are generally treated in universities, rather like students are treated by government, as in they're isolated into one department. Um, you know, if I, if I think that PGR support departments are often responsible for employment, welfare, housing, uh, pastoral care, um, relationships with supervisors and so on. There, there needs to be, I think, a real um, step back from the sector about the PGR student experience, what what it means uh, all all round, what support do they need to, to live, uh, how are they employed, you know, some national standards around uh, employment for um, casual teaching uh, and so on. Um, and but at the moment, there's there's n there's no one really advocating for that, other than obviously the industrial action that is is focused on ca general casualisation in the sector. Yes, yeah, Selena, can you think of a? I mean, you know, we have a national pay spine for academics. We have you know a kind of national stipend level, at least suggested by UKRI. Is there a justification for? the amount that we pay PGRs who teach to be radically different in every institution on an hourly rate basis. You know, is that, is that, is, well, on what basis would that be okay? I'm, I've been trying, I've been trying to work that out. Um, I don't think so. And I don't think most students who've been taught by PGR students would think so. Um, I, I, you know, and you just sort of think, well, that stipend is, it's below minimum wage, you know, as an annualized figure. Um, so there is a presumption of uh, employment around it. Um, I 
think that regardless of what your status is, I think, you know, where you go on the teaching pay scale should be about the experience you've got. So they may be at the lower end, but I don't think that they should have or be treated as a different category of worker. Mm. And, and on, 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 the, on these kind of wider questions of support, you know, why are we in this position where it's UKRI talking about the kind of student experience offer for um, PGRs and, and we don't really hear of anything from RFS? You know, is that, is that you know, what's going on? Yeah, well, uh, I, think, I think you're starting to delve into this sort of... Um, the, again, the kind of real problems with the, uh, the, the, the not it's not the remit of OFS, it's the interpretation of the remit of OFS that I think is problematic. Um, you know, it is playing to the biggest audience constantly. Um, and PGR, you know, it, their student experience is just as important as an undergraduate student experience. But there is little interest and, and, and little oversight from the regulator. I, I go back to some of the, the, the structural challenges locally and, and nationally around, you know, the, the division of, of where um, remits start, start and end. So if you imagine in a university, you will often have a Pro Vice Chancellor for Teaching, Learning and Student Experience, which will include undergraduate and PGT students, and a Pro, Pro Vice Chancellor for Research that will include PGR students. Um, and that then is ratioed up towards OFS and, and UKRI. Um, so the student representative bodies, although you know we've now taken the decision to have a postgraduate research specific officer to start work on this, to you know student unions uh, aren't particularly great at it, and US hasn't been great at it. Um, UCU comes at it, I think, from a paying conditions point of view, which of course is 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 its its remit. Um, I wonder if there is just something else missing that needs to join some of these dots. And and, and actually, Michael, really, I, I guess the original prospect of that New Deal work was all going to be about you know thinking about um, careers and and the kind of overall future of, of of the kind of profession, really, of kind of being an academic, but. This, this this issue of the stipend appears to have kind of ground a lot of that work to a halt. Yeah, it does. It does. So, you know, alongside the stipend announcement, we had a sort of summary of consultations they've had from across the sector. Loads of students answered it. They've got a kind of analysis, a thematic analysis has been done of what people said. Um, the, the UKRI response is still forthcoming. It will be later this year. Um, you know, and there's all kinds of ideas that, you know, as you've said, it's not just about finance. People are talking about conditions, pathways supervisory practices relationships all these different things um and yeah there is a bit of a sense that the the, the pgr new deal can't come soon enough at this point um it, it feels like it's been quite a long time coming it also feels a bit i mean and this is partly to do with these arguments that have been had around the stipend and the campaigning that work that's been done on it that the expense of a really satisfying new deal that does what people uh, you know from all across the sector but students especially need it to do is going to be quite tough to to achieve now someone who knows a lot about uh, pgrs and research but also knows a lot about hanging around is our colleague james Cohn. hi it's james here associate editor for research and innovation and this week, I've not been writing about research and innovation. I've instead been thinking about my university days and the joy of just hanging out. When I think about when I went to university a decade ago, the most fun I had was those long expanses of time dedicated to not doing much at all. In my peaceful wonky this week, the slow death of hanging out, I argued that rather than those times having no value whatsoever, we should instead do all we can to preserve them. 
It's my belief that in those moments of that repeated engagement with people who we like and who we know, it's where we build those communities that so much of the structured time is dedicated to. Alongside the cost of living and this drumbeat that the only time that is productive is time that is filled, we risk squeezing out the time for just hanging out. If we do that, time to do nothing will become a luxury afforded to only the best of. I think time to simply hang out is the next big political issue that students' unions and universities should be engaged with. Now, next up, there's a new report out on giving to universities, Ben. Yes, there is. So the um, the Case Ross Support of uh, Education Survey, uh, now in its uh, 20th year, um, looks at higher education institutions across the UK and Ireland. Um, so 88 participating institutions looking at fundraising, alumni donations and philanthropy. Um, so headline figures to, to look at really um, look fairly promising for the sector, uh, although uh, as ever in the higher education sector there's the, the, the haves and have nots, but funds committed have jumped by 31% uh, in the last year to £1.49 billion. Um, but as I said before, two elite institutions, I think we could probably name who they are, uh, dominating the totals, followed by another 10 or so strongly performing universities uh, and a long, uh, and a long tail. Uh, number of donors has decreased, um, but um, we just see actually um, in terms of alumni donations, only 0.8% of the 15.7 million total alumni for those institutions uh, reporters making contributions. So there isn't, uh, you know, we've talked for many years around um, getting to a culture of philanthropy um, that, that exists in, in many other countries, particularly when we look longingly to the, to the US. Um, so, yeah, really interesting report. And, and certainly um, from what I've seen is that universities really do seem to be upping their game uh, in terms of fundraising. You only have to look at the number of jobs now available in, in, uh, in development fundraising alumni relations that, that are advertised on any of the uh, sector job sites. Now, Selena, I'm all for people giving money to universities. But <laughs> obviously, you know, we know that some universities produce richer graduates than others. And there is a danger, isn't there? If, 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 you know, the world says to itself, well, let's depend more on philanthropy than public funding, that the richer institutions get richer and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's two kind of, um, there's two stories within this in terms of development funding. There's the alumni side of it, which as Ben says, no surprise that that has, you know, not not increase so it's a, a marginal decrease but we've now got that set of graduates who are getting the calls from student fundraisers to make their regular monthly contributions they at the same time are seeing their pay packets with their nine percent contribution to their student loans and not feeling as generous as generations of alumni in the past that is no surprise i think that has been predicted um, and i think certainly the institutions that i've worked with are more interested actually in uh, the non-financial giving that alumni can contribute to institutional life, which is really important. You know, the mentoring, the talks, the access to workplace experiences. Um, and then I think there is the sort of more traditional philanthropic donors. And I think what I, I was talking to actually a development professional a couple of weeks ago, and they had a background in not just higher education, but in the, uh, in the arts sector as well. And they said, you know, the, the, the thing about fundraising these days is that it is always something for something in a much more explicit and uh, tailored way than had perhaps been the case in the past. And when you are in that kind of funding proposition, there's no way that that kind of funding can be viable 
as a kind of source of alternative support for your core cost. So you may want to go out and sort of seek a donor for, you know, a new building. They love new buildings, naming rights and all the rest of it. But the institution always has to put far more into that building. Um, and unless that building in itself is something that's going to increase revenues, which will contribute to your core costs in the future, it's not going to help with the, the wider system of balancing your budget. Um, and I think the other thing that kind of just is, is the kind of concern about this, and, and Case make this point, and actually they make it as a positive, which is what this research shows is that if you increase development staffing, you will get increased awards. And I think for a lot of us that have worked in those institutions that are not in the top 10 of uh, fundraisers, that creates a real tension about where your sort of investment funding year on year, when you do get a little bit of budget to spend on something new, is going um, and there is no guarantee of returns. There never is. Yes, that 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 uh, that kind of hierarchy of fundraising is obviously very common in the wider voluntary sector, Michael. Where you know the really big, high-profile charities, um, you know, they're sort of bang for buck when they spend a bit of money on a fundraiser. It's very different to you know many other charities. And you know, there's there are all sorts of ethical questions actually, aren't there, about what people want for the money, how much you spend to raise it, whether you can depend on it for a long time, all sorts of ethical questions come up if this is the direction of travel. Yeah, they definitely do. I, I think it's a really interesting area. You know, a question about how much you, universities spend in order to attract donations, you know, so we see here the, the sort of, I think, 10 or so of what the report calls the, the fragile institutions where their programs are, you know, you could say nascent or, you know, or struggling possibly. I mean, they're bringing in an average of eighty thousand pounds from 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 donations. I mean, does that fund an alumni office, a fundraising team? Not by a long way. Um, there's also quite a dwindling response rate to this survey. It got a lot more sort of a decade ago. Um, whether that is is that about less successful institutions, so, you know, being forced to disengage a bit from fundraising, possibly. Um, but you know, and yeah, the, the, this report is entirely about the money coming into the institutions that responded is not at all about where that money goes which is a really really interesting question because you know on the one side you've got these sort of the big stellar um you know big ticket donations um you know the which often bring institutions negative publicity you know from certain sources there's a lot of talk in the report about the importance of due diligence um you know but when when we're talking about multi-million pound donations that you know it's it's becomes tricky for universities to really do due diligence um, to the level that many of their employees would expect them to do. You know, u university staff, um, yeah, really have quite high expectations for the probity of their institutions. If I walk around the my local area, I can see buildings named after people who've been linked with arms dealing, who've been linked with the opioid crisis in the USA. And, you should do you, know, you should do walking tours, Michael. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I imagine those things exist. And, you know, they, they, so there's that side of things. But, you know, as Selena says, there's also really interesting possibilities around getting your alumni collected, uh, connected back with your education strategies. And you do see this now more and more in, in education strategies that are thinking about, um, you know, how do alumni contribute whether that's through their time their expertise whether it's for specific funding for really interesting programs you know I'm, I'm, there's one institution i'm very familiar with a program that where they have funded through alumni funding undergraduate research placements for students where they're paired with 
um, an academic and they're given a stipend it's not just free they're actually also subsidized because it's during the summer so, so their living cost it pays and they're, they're involved in an undergraduate research project and many of them publish articles out of it you know it's really interesting and that relationship between alumni and education is you know the question of what an alumni is is really made more interesting by the LLE as well because an alumni stops being someone who's finished it becomes someone who is you know just in the world of work but maybe coming back you know possibly if you know if touch wood the LLE all goes well and it does what it's supposed to yeah no I, I was just about to agree with that I think there's some there's some fascinating projects in in relation to student success employability ensuring that those students who might not be able to uh, have a pre-existing network to help them get a network of people that have been through the institution so you know start start to uh, ad address some of those inequalities using both the money donated but also um uh, you know alumni working in in roles and in organizations that that students want access to and I, and I think that is a that has been a fantastic turn for the sector um and more of that please How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now it's time for Play Your Data Right. Here to set this week's wage conundrum is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. In a format devised for Wonky exclusively by Prince Edward's production company, I'm delighted to bring you a very special It's a Royal Play Your Leo Data Right. We're looking today at three kids, all of whom grew up on an estate, William, Beatrice and Eugenie, all of which attended UK universities. William graduated with a degree in Geography from St Andrews, Beatrice holds a degree in History from Goldsmiths, and Eugenie majored in English at Newcastle. The game here is to rank them by the average salary the most recent cohort on those courses could expect to see five years after graduation, according to the latest LEO data. William, Beatrice and Eugenie, who will win? I would say Geography would be top, uh, then I would say History, then English. Uh, well, subject, largely but also a little bit of institution with the top one. 
Yeah, I would say um, St Andrew's Geography, top, Newcastle, second, and Goldsmiths History, third. Yeah, hard to argue with that, really. I think I will also put Geography top and um, and, and, and History at Goldsmiths. Uh, no, maybe I'll say that second, in English at Newcastle, third. I mean, it's an interesting question how well the Royals show up in the Leo data. So, five years after graduation, William St Andrews Geography could expect a median salary of 32600 topping our list. Eugenie, Newcastle, English, could expect 27100 giving her second place, with her elder sister, Beatrice Goldsmith's history, looking at 26400 and third place. Now, I've checked the SOC codes, and it turns out heir to the throne isn't listed, so I'll have to assume that William doesn't have a graduate drop, dragging down St Andrew's graduate outcome statistics. But in Scotland, that isn't as important as the fact Balmoral is in SIMD quintile 4. Beatrice is a strategist for a US software company, a graduate job, and that's good news for Goldsmith's B3 data, although as she lives overseas, they're going to struggle to get her to fill in the graduate outcomes form. And Eugenie is a director of a gallery, a graduate job, and that's a good news for Newcastle's B3 stats. Now, finally this week, higher education has economic benefits for disadvantaged students, but it's not quite that simple, is it, Selena? No, it is not that simple. So this is a new report from uh, Tasso that has found that higher education is linked to clear economic benefits for disadvantaged students, but these students earn less than more advantaged graduates. So that takes account of the university they attended or the subjects studied. Um, so the report is drawing on data from the UK Household Longitudinal Survey and looks at the soft benefits in university outcomes, so well-being, mental health, social capital. And what it's going to look at is whether or not those demonstrated benefits can be explained by the fact that graduates are more likely to be younger, better off and employed than the general population. And uh, They find that a significant relationship between university study and social capital outcomes, such as the number of close friends and reduced loneliness. So overall, university, a good thing, but the, the comparative uh, level of disadvantage still exists. Michael, do we get a sense from this of, of why? You know, what is going on here? Isn't, isn't the idea that once you kind of get in, you're on the same level as everyone and then you can fly? You know, what, why is it that... Um, you know, albeit that higher education generally is better than not higher, not being in higher education from from this kind of economic point of view. Why is it that there's still this kind of hierarchy based on previous advantage when people leave? So the question is, why do the rich, why do why do rich families produce rich? I and mean, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons. I mean, and it kind of maybe goes back to this. Um, you know, Leo data thing we're, we're talking about here, where you know your wealth isn't just about your earnings. It's it's the whole. You know, it, it, you know, it's it's the land you own. It's the property. It's the capital that you gains as well. These these things that sort of don't quite show up in in graduate outcomes in the same way. I mean, but you know, it's it's also about the you know the 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 social capital the the you know these the the cultural capital that you come with the the connections the networks the places you're in as well and you know are you in are you in the right place are you able to you know do an internship are you could you can your parents fund you while you do further study all, all, all these different things um yeah i i think th this side of the report is is you know 
perhaps not particularly surprising but I, you know i do think these taser reports that and they're really on a roll with them at the moment to sort of you know clear evidence-based stuff designed for policymakers and for, for you know I, I think they're a really good thing and they're they're always worth reading ben for, for, in, in terms of what's kind of happening you know in in in, in the actual real world you know on, on campus one, one of the stories i often tell i think i've told it before on the podcast is, is steve smith uh, you know off of um, you know, previous VC at Exeter and now international education champion, gave an interview to The Guardian four or five years ago where he said, look, the thing about getting into university is it's a leveller. You know, once you're in, you're on the same level as everyone else. But, you know, the actual day-to-day lived reality of that isn't quite, 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 quite like that, is it, in terms of no. access to internships or, no, you well, know, uh, getting into extra debt to pay for your rent or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's uh, one of the interesting pieces of work I've always wanted to do, and I think we're, we're starting to look at it now, is actually are leadership positions in extracurricular activities actually reinforcing inequalities or, or doing something about them? Um, because, you know, there's there's all sorts of things that, that students who are used to joining in things, having the money to do so, can do that others can't. Interestingly, from the, from the other end, there's all employers play a role in this as well, in in you know universities are proud at being targeted by employers which is also has a uh, inequality re- reinforcing effect so um you know students that went to particular universities who are now uh, in jobs in some of the top graduate recruiters will recruit like for like um and so so there's a there's a number of things to, to do it and of, and the thing that stands out for me in the tasso report more than anything and it's like reading everything i've ever read in the last 20 years around the sector is the the lack of uh, high quality information advice and guidance for students applying to university pre-entry information advice guidance in schools and colleges is is still woefully inadequate um and 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 there therein lies the one of the major problems selena obviously most people's kind of base instinct in the sector and i understand why is that opportunity really matters and if we can get someone that's disadvantaged into higher education get them through their program you know that's a good thing but but doesn't evidence like this start to raise kind of questions about whether or not actually there are a huge chunk of students in higher education right now who who might not be better off actually and, and certainly won't be kind of cheating the old system in terms of social mobility yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back actually to what Ben has said. I mean, uh, it it is higher education is not a leveller. Um, there is still a very different terrain. Students have a very different student experience depending on what their financial circumstances are whilst they study. Their family financial circumstances will have an impact on even what they choose to do on graduation. You know, how much time they can spend. You know searching out the right graduate career, taking on unpaid or poorly paid internships. But I think, you know, Ben makes the p- point of picking out of the TASA report, the, the point about pre-entry information advice and guidance. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It is woefully, woefully funded uh, in the school sector. Um, most advice and guidance, you know, comes from teachers who are reflecting on their own university experience, which, as we know, will have changed a lot. Uh, and probably that's the best kind of advice and guidance that many students get because advice and guidance around alternative uh, options to university is, is even more thin. Um, but I think as part of that guidance, there needs to be a really informed consideration of what it means in terms of 
the financial outcomes as well as the academic outcomes and the well-being outcomes. Um, I'd like to think as a, you know, an, an advocate of the sector, there are many more gains um, than, than negatives with going to university. But I also think that you have to see that in the context of what the alternatives are. And until we have got much, much better properly funded pre-entry advice and guidance, not just in terms of university, but just what your post-16 options are, um, then I, I, I don't think that young people are equipped to really make um, a proper judgment. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Selena, Ben, Michael, who also makes the show happen behind the scenes. Mark will be here next week. And until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.